0: Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz, b i z, and check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity. We also have our own website now, get me, eh? Offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy listening again to Jeannie Kendall, our special guest for today. Who is she? Well, she was born and raised in Cornwall and describes herself as a pilgrim. She is a Baptist minister. I am indeed. Before going freelance as a teacher and a writer. You've written books like Finding Our Voice, Held in Your Bottle, and the latest book recently released, Heroes of Villains, which looks at the goodies and baddies of Christian faith in the Bible. We discussed all that, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago, Jeannie?
1: We did indeed. Yeah, it was great fun.
0: Oh, I'll take great fun. (laughs) This is a standalone broadcast, this one, because in our last podcast together, which was released, as I said, a couple of weeks ago, I suggested I had a great idea which could lead to a special recording subject to terms and conditions and her lawyers talking to mine, which they subsequently did just. Because of Jeannie's background, I thought she would be the ideal guest to explain and discuss about a subject that's been on my mind for years and i have made mention to it on, with previous guests as well. So let's get beyond any sound bites available and discuss Jesus and women in the four Gospels. Did Jesus have women disciples? What was a woman's role 2,000 years ago? Were they deliberately airbrushed out of the Gospels, as some have said? gives me great pleasure. to Welcome back, Jeannie Kendall. Jeannie, thanks so much for making valuable time. Just to give us an idea of what you're doing currently in life, apart from preparing for this, what what are you doing at the moment, please? Uh,
1: So I'm uh, teaching pastoral supervision for Spurgeons College, which is all done via Zoom which has been since COVID, but actually works really well. We can have people from all over the world, which is fantastic. I'm yeah. um, preaching. I've got some interviewing coming up for people who want to be ministers, part of the panel for that, and doing some teaching on leadership in the new year. So, yeah, I've got plenty to keep me
0: occupied. Well, well, thank you for making just an hour available today. I'm really looking forward to this, and I thank you for all the emails and the correspondence we've had in the, the previous two weeks so that we could get some semblance of what's going on. Let's get beyond the bites then and discuss Jesus and women in the four Gospels. Jeannie, please tell us a bit more and give us a general background about a woman's role in Jesus's time.
1: Yeah, so it was interesting really because actually, if you look back in Old Testament times, they did have quite a good status at that point, but things deteriorated. So there's about 600 years between the end of the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings. And during that time, Um, Although it was better than the surrounding cultures, actually, where it was even grimmer, it was really quite poor. In their own domain, in the home, women still had some status. Um, Not least, it was their responsibility, actually, to ensure that all the purity laws, the food laws were kept at home. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case in public settings. And very much in the eyes of the law, women were seen as inferior. So they couldn't be a witness, for example, in a law court. There were a list of other people who couldn't be a witness in a law court like Gentiles, minors, and so on. Although interestingly, a king couldn't bear witness in a law court, and neither could the Messiah. Well, it was assumed when he arrived that he wouldn't be. So actually, it's probably not quite as bad as it sounds, but nonetheless. The other interesting thing was socially, it was really not considered okay to associate with a woman outside your immediate family. That was frowned upon. And there's a, a Babylonian Talmud, who tells of a Galilean rabbi who was scolded just for asking a woman the way to a local town. What on earth they would have made of Jesus then? We'll obviously come back to that in a minute. Mm. So they couldn't get into the center of the temple for worship. There's a special court for the women and the men were allowed to go further in. They could be divorced easily, very easily, actually. And a number of rabbis said that women were not to be taught there's quite a famous quote that says, whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is considered as if he taught her foolishness. Now, whether that's because women didn't have the same education to understand it, or whether it was a put down, that is not clear. But certainly, it was not expected that that women would be taught. And when we come back to Jesus, we'll see he made a massive shift in that.
0: Obviously, I did extensive research. <laughs> I read a couple of books that I've had for ages. and um, One of the books by Nick Page called uh, The Longest Week. He describes women in the uh, first century as dangerous because they provoked lust. Uh, and the later rabbis were emphatic about the danger of even looking at a woman. Even in death, a woman could be a temptation, which is why men were hanged naked, but women clothed. It's
1: true, amazing. It?
0: Yeah.
1: I'm not sure how much it's changed, actually, because I've been in churches where comment has been made about you know how women on the platform dress and so on now I've never seen a woman scantily dressed on the platform uh, or in a pulpit so uh, I'm not sure where that comes from but maybe it says more if I may dare to say so Martin about the male of the species than it does about the female
0: I'm offended (laughs) (laughs) taking it a step further a woman's hair was considered sexually provocative and this is from the Mishnah which I didn't know what the Mishnah was in those days so Tell us what a Mishnah is or was, please.
1: A Mishnah literally means oral teaching. Um, And it was a book of rules compiled in Palestine, actually in the the second century AD. But it dated back before that, because, of course, a lot of writings in those days, there was an oral tradition. It was then eventually written down. Um, So it was material that went back, certainly, to the time of Jesus. And it was a mixture of teaching by Jewish sages who kind of sought to expound how Jewish people should live. Um, and the other one that's probably worth mentioning is the Talmud, which is the Mishnah plus sort of various commentaries by later rabbis. And both of those books were used as sources for, you know, how how should be lived. And indeed, I'm, I'm sure still are.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about women's hair. I and mean, No doubt we'll talk about this later on as well. But there's a certain part in the Bible where Jesus is having his feet washed by a, a lady, who we'll talk about later on, and she was using her hair to clean the feet with. Now, there's a thought, if it was considered for a woman's hair to be sexually provocative, look at what's going on there straight away. Well, When we read that, we just seem to brush that bit out, as in thinking about that the hair isn't doing anything other than being a towel.
1: Well, and I hope we'll come back to that story, because that is quite an extraordinary story, actually, in lots of, lots of ways. But yes, a woman was not allowed to let their hair down anywhere than in the home and with anyone other than their husband. It's interesting, isn't it? We've got such different attitudes now, for sure. Yeah. But, yeah, that was how it was.
0: Okay, so we've got a basic understanding and what it must be like 2,000 years ago. What exactly is a definition or the definition of a disciple, please, Jeannie?
1: It's actually really simple. A disciple simply means follower. But where we've got in a bit of a was about this, I think, is because of the 12 disciples, as they're sometimes referred to, It might be better referred to as the 12 apostles. The word apostle means sent, and it's the word generally used of pioneering missionary, actually, in any context. Some people today are still referred to as apostles, if they have a sort of travelling ministry. That's why we've got in a little bit of a tease. but disciple just means follower. So it's not just about the 12, but about anybody who followed Jesus then and indeed now.
0: See, I've heard stories that, well, the apostle is actually referring purely to the 12 because... Apostle could only be applied to someone that was there and came under Jesus' teaching.
1: That was the criteria that was used at the beginning of Acts. So when Judas killed himself, then they wanted to replace him. And the reason they wanted to replace him, this kind of goes slightly on to probably the next question, um, is because 12 as a number was representative of something. And so they used that criteria in order to replace him and replace Judas. But actually, the apostle apostle in itself, it's not a word that is confined to the 12 stroke 13 of those early followers. It is quite confusing. And we probably need to actually to find another completely different term to refer to the 12 stroke 13 people. Yeah, yeah. Because it has caused such confusion really over the years.
0: So just to get right again, what does apostle mean?
1: It means sent or sent one, as I say, used of any pioneering, usually travelling, missionary.
0: And a disciple means?
1: Simply follower, that's all.
0: So consequently then, to say, did Jesus have a disciple? If we take the word disciple out and say, did Jesus have any women followers? Then obviously the answer is, well, he must have done, because yeah. we get that feeding from reading the Gospels. But then why did he only choose men?
1: Well, he only chose men for the 12 during the lifetime of Judas. And that was because the 12 actually had a significance that was not really to do with gender. It was to do with number. The 12 tribes of Israel were those who made up the Jewish nation originally. Originally, of course, 12 sons of Jacob. And that had an enormous significance. When Abraham was called to move from his country and go into the land of Canaan, as it was at the time, He was given a promise by God that his descendants would be a blessing, actually, to all the nations. And so the people of Israel were intended to be a blessing to others, and that would be a much longer conversation. But when Jesus chose the twelve, he's quite deliberately recreating, as it were, a new set of tribe leaders, a new representation of the new Israel, of those who would also be a blessing to the nations. So it's very much to do with the number. Now, in those days, because the 12 tribes of Israel originally were from the 12 sons of Jacob, it wouldn't have actually made any sense to choose women to do that, to represent that. Um, That doesn't in any way discount women from being highly significant, as we'll see in the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, it simply made sense to replicate that, to represent the new Israel, as it were, by choosing 12 men. So we've unnecessarily, again, got ourselves in a bit of a pickle where we probably don't need to have.
0: But then if we take into consideration what it was like socially 2,000 years ago, maybe we'd have just been pushing the boat out too far by having a a woman as one or women as one of those Well,
1: yes, but also if you're trying to to replicate something, to represent something, the 12 original tribes were headed by the men, the, the sons of Jacob, It is simply replicating that. I I don't think we need to read any more significance than that. But it's a point that's often missed when people talk about the 12 disciples. They often miss that fact that actually Jesus is saying there is a new company now. There's a new grouping from whom everyone will be blessed. So that point often gets missed, actually.
0: Yeah, thank you for making it. It's something that you said in our two weeks leading up to this, that you'd like to discuss uh, Jesus' teaching style. And, of course, that really floated my boat because I used to be a training officer, as I think I told you in a couple of emails. So let's talk about Jesus' teaching style and also how did it affect his teaching style with regard to women listening, amongst other things.
1: Well, I think it did massively. I mean, Jesus clearly did have a lot of women followers, and um, we haven't listed them, but we could um, if we wanted to look at some of those examples. Mm. But if you look at Jesus' teaching, and this was in contrast to most people at the day, there's a lot of equality in terms of the examples that he gives. So Jesus has this sort of inaugural sermon, a bit like his manifesto um, in Luke 4, which he gives at Nazareth. Manifesto, very topical, obviously, at the moment. Mm. And he mentions there a Gentile woman. Uh, his second example, actually, is a Gentile man. So right from the start, he's saying, here we, here we go. You know, these genders are both included in this. And clearly, Jesus had enormous empathy with women. Um, again, I'm sure we'll come back to some of the encounters he had with them. But he uses examples of women a lot in his teaching. So there's the rather curious story in his parable of a woman who is struggling with an unjust judge. And so she keeps coming back and coming back. And you know, it's a parable about prayer. But he uses an example as well, and again, the parable about a woman needing dough, one from Luke 13, for those who would like to look things up. And right the way through, there's enormous equality. So probably the most well-known parables, I guess, in many ways in Luke, are the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. And Jesus could very easily have not included a woman in that story. But the lost coin is a story of a woman. And actually, later on, a rabbi used very similar stories, but all about men. So there's an enormous inclusion of women in the teaching of Jesus and, and included in very positive ways. And finally, I guess the story really, really dear to my heart, actually, is the widow who comes in with two coins. The story at the beginning of Luke 21, where she gives just two coins and Jesus points her out as an example of generous and wonderful giving. There were a lot of people who would have been giving money at that point, many of them rich and giving lots of money. And he chooses to give this lady, just giving two tiny coins, not worth a lot of money, but worth a lot to her and he chooses to honour her and give her as as an example. So, yeah, lots of, lots of ways, right through Jesus' teaching where women are honoured and included.
0: So what should we note then regarding not just Jesus' parables and the way Jesus is using women in stories, but his interaction with women at this time?
1: Well, the fact that he interacted with women at all is quite extraordinary, actually, Mm -hmm. because, as we said a bit earlier on, Normally, you would not interact with women outside your own immediate family. And Jesus interacts with lots of them. Actually, not only interacting with them, we we discovered that some of the women were actually paying towards their itinerant ministry that Jesus and the disciples were involved in.
0: Give me an example.
1: There's a a little group of women that are mentioned in Luke chapter 8, just at the beginning. Mary called Magdalene, and we're going to come back, I know, to her. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was actually, Chusa, her husband, was a manager of Herod's household. It's incredible that someone attached to Herod was following Jesus Yeah. and Susanna. And it says that the women were helping to support them out of their own means. So these were women with a reasonable amount of money who were paying towards it. Now, you know, there's the old phrase, isn't there? He who pays the piper chooses the tune or whatever it is. Yeah. So the fact that they were paying, that gave them some status actually, in that whole kind of procedure. So quite remarkable, actually. Yes. And if they're supporting him, presumably they were also travelling. I mean, the implication of those verses is that they were travelling with them at least some of the time.
0: Yeah. So which Herod are we talking about at this time? Because there are a couple of Herods banded around in the Bible.
1: Yes. So this would have been Herod Herod Antipas. There's loads of Herods in the Bible. Yeah. Probably the most well-known, actually, is his father, Herod the Great, who was the one who massacred the the infants in Bethlehem. This is one of his sons, Herod Antipas.
0: Right. So fairly important if you were living there at the time for whatever reason. And one of his workers high up in the the echelons of uh, the, the palace, his wife is giving money and following Jesus around.
1: Yeah, quite extraordinary, really groundbreaking. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. So what other interactions come to mind then with regard to women at this time from Jesus' point of view?
1: Just a general point, and then it'd be great to kind of look at one of the stories. but Generally, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is often interrupted by women.
0: <laughs> I'm not saying anything. am not saying anything.
1: <laughs> or he interrupts his own schedule to help women. So, for example, uh, there's the story of a widow at Nain whose only son has died. Now, that was a catastrophe in those days because... Widows would normally be supported by male members of their family, and it Mm. says it's her only son. So she had no means of income. And Jesus actually chooses. He, in this occasion, interrupts the funeral and raises her son from the dead. But there are other occasions when women interrupt Jesus. So there's the woman who is bleeding, for example, has been bleeding for years, and she touches the hem of his garment. She breaks every rule and regulation to do that. And Jesus stops. And says, "Who's touched me?" Sensing that something has happened, but not to tell this woman off, which is what would have been expected. That he would have said to her, "What on earth are you doing, you ghastly woman? Go away." Um, and actually, what what he says is, he just kind of uh, reinforces that she's been healed. So I love that on occasions when there are women around, mm. Jesus chooses to to honor them, or to help them, or to simply allow them to listen to him, or whatever it may be. But maybe it'd be great to look at the story we alluded to earlier, which is the woman who anoints Jesus.
0: Please go for it.
1: So she is one of my absolute favourites, I have to say. It's a brilliant story, but it's a story with a lot of layers. So people often kind of miss some of the layers. Mm -hmm. So Jesus has been invited to the home of someone called Simon the Pharisee. We need to note that Jesus did go and eat with Pharisees, even though they were not his greatest fans, (laughs) to put it mildly. And I love that Jesus still went to eat with them. Yes. You know, Jesus will be welcomed by anyone, won't he? But when he arrived, Simon, it would appear very deliberately, snubbed him. So there were things that you always did for a guest in those days. So you would give them a kiss on each cheek as a a welcome. You would either have water to wash their feet or you would get a slave, if you had a slave, to wash their feet. Mm -hmm. And you would anoint them with oil. So it was a kind of perfumed oil, sometimes rose water. And that was a bit like freshening up. We used to say in the old days, didn't we? Would you like to go and freshen up? Yes. The kind of same equivalent. Well, they didn't do any of those things, which makes you wonder why on earth perhaps Simon had actually invited Jesus in the first place, but who knows? This woman then enters. Now, she's described as a sinful woman, and the Greek word does imply she may well have been a prostitute, although we don't know that. Uh Uh-huh. And she was able to come in because they would eat in the, if they got a guest, they would eat in the courtyard, bit of a status for the host to say, oh, look who's eating in my house. So people could come in. But this woman, of course, would not have been expected to come in. You can just imagine the crowd parting as she enters. Mm. So they don't kind of get anywhere near her. And she stands there weeping. Uh, and actually, the word means weeping for a long time. And it's always assumed that she's weeping from gratitude to Jesus, that she's encountered him before. She's found forgiveness and she's grateful. And I'm sure that is definitely part of what is going on. And she's brought perfume with her. Looks as though she's always intended to anoint him as, as an act of thanks. But I wonder if there's a bit more to it here, because it is clear that she was there as Jesus arrived. Jesus later on says, from the moment I came in, she did not cease to kiss my feet. So she was there when Jesus arrived. So she would have seen that this person, her friend, her rescuer, has been snubbed and humiliated, actually, publicly. Mm -hmm. And I reckon that some of what's going on here is she is devastated that this man who has done so much for her is being treated in this way. So she clearly came ready to anoint him. She'd brought the oil with her, but she hadn't brought water. She didn't intend to wash his feet. But as she weeps... Ah, there are tears falling on his feet. His feet would have been behind because they reclined to worship. She thinks, I can wash his feet. These people are not washing his feet. They're not doing this for him. This is terrible. But I'm weeping. I can wash his feet. But then, of course, she has no towel and she can't ask for one because she's persona non grata. So all she has is her hair. She lets down her hair, uses her hair to wipe his feet, washing his feet. And, of course, doing so causes an absolute stir Mm -hmm. because she's done, as we alluded to earlier, the one thing you are not allowed to do. And actually, I think what she's doing here, apart from just putting right the snub that she feels he's experienced, she's actually pledging loyalty to Jesus. She's saying, you know, this is my way to say thank you for all that you have done
0: for me. Basically, she's broken the golden rule that she was persona non grata So she shouldn't have even been allowed to go anywhere near the honoured guest. Yeah. She also used her hair, which we've already discussed was sexually provocative. It was even shown. Yeah, she's doing pretty well, isn't she, on the audience booing her?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, they were, well, they were absolutely horrified. And Simon thinks, aha, now I can use this as an example to discredit Jesus. Because if he were a prophet, he would know, you know, the, who this woman was. Yeah. But he only thinks it; he doesn't voice it. And Jesus actually replies to his thought, which is quite scary, I think, <laughs> if you think about Jesus knowing everything that we yeah. think—that's a very scary thought. But Jesus answers the thought. But what I love is, as he answers Simon, it says that he looked at the woman. So he answers Simon, but he looks at the woman, and then he says to Simon, "Have you seen this woman?" Of course, he Simon hasn't—not in the way that Jesus has. He's seen her as a caricature, as a sinful woman. But Jesus sees this woman with all her longing for love and her longing for a fresh start and all of those things that Jesus sees. And to me, it's a wonderful example that people see us in a certain way and maybe as a caricature, but Jesus sees who we really, really are. And he's done that for this woman. And instead of criticising her as they expected, he criticises his host. He's also breaking protocol here. (laughs) Jesus isn't afraid to break protocol you did not criticize your host when you went to visit we'd be a bit the same now wouldn't we oh,
0: i don't know yes yeah, exactly. we tend not to right we, yeah. we
1: might when we've gone
0: <laughs> no exactly
1: wouldn't do it at the time and of course rabbis were forbidden to speak to women so and jesus addresses her yeah. yeah a story of completely messing up all of their protocol i'd love to have been a fly on the wall in simon's house when they'd left <laughs> to what simon made of it yeah, all. No,
0: exactly. well the scary thought for me is as you just mentioned there is that Jesus knows our every thought, you know, that I was there 2,000 years ago. he would be going, Martin, why are you thinking about football? We haven't even invented the sport yet, you know. The- yeah,
1: but what a, what a wonderful way that Jesus deals with this fantastic woman.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So he's got this thing about interacting with women, breaking so many boundaries. What else should we learn?
1: There are several, actually, that I could choose because there's some lovely stories of interacting with women. Maybe it'd be good to talk briefly about one that I think most people have misunderstood. Please. And that's one where Jesus talks with a Syrophoenician woman, so a a Gentile woman. Because when people read this story, they often think that Jesus is being quite insensitive and quite racist. And I think that's a misreading, actually, of the story. Um, So this is a woman who comes to Jesus asking for help, begging actually for help. And Jesus initially is silent. And people think, oh, that's being very mean. But actually what he's doing there is he is keeping for once what you were meant to do. He wouldn't have been meant to interact with this woman, both because she's a woman, but actually she's Gentile as well. Mm -hmm. And Jesus' disciples are present. And that's really important reading the story, because I think what follows is actually Jesus helping these disciples to learn something um, rather than simply interacting with this woman, though he's doing that. This woman's quite brave. I mean, she's reached out across Her racial barriers and gender barriers but she's obviously desperate her daughter is ill and she's clearly heard of jesus so jesus having done the expected thing and remained quiet the disciples then get really upset because she's bothering them they want her sent away but this woman is doggedly determined she wants to see her daughter healed and it's rather lovely she actually kneels at jesus feet and essentially says help which is great, isn't it? I think that's our, that's our most profound prayer, actually, is just when we say help yes. to God. And the disciples, they've been with Jesus a while. They know that all he's ever done is offer compassion. So why he's expecting her to send this woman away, I don't know. But what Jesus says is, is the bit that can sound offensive, which is, you know, we can't take what is there for the children and offer it to the dogs. Now, dogs was a term for Gentiles. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he is voicing the prejudice that his disciples were wrestling with. But what he chooses is a different word. So rather than usual word for dogs, which was quite a harsh word, Mm -hmm. he chooses little dogs, a bit like the puppies. So actually, that's quite an affectionate way to say it. What is then rather wonderful is that this woman comes back to him saying, hold on a minute, even the dogs get the crumbs from under the table. So quite wittily, she responds to Jesus, and it's just fantastic. She turns the insult, as it could have been heard, to humour, I guess because she's heard in Jesus the gentle way in which he's offering this. Yes. And, And so he then commends her, you know, woman, you've got great faith. Your request is granted. Her daughter is healed, but perhaps more importantly, it's an object lesson for the disciples in puncturing the kind of prejudice that they held and that so many held, and that if we're honest, so many of us hold in in one way or another.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did like your pun. I don't think you did it deliberately <laughs> when you said she was doggedly determined. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a hero, though. A great woman. Yeah, there
0: you go. Whether she was thinking that at the time, let alone being able to speak it in English, I don't know. Doggedly determined. That's brilliant. Thank you. Let's talk about Mary Magdalene then, because she gets a load of bad press. And I was telling one of our neighbours that, you know, I'm going to be doing this podcast really looking forward to it. And obviously we want to talk about Mary Magdalene. And she immediately shot back with, did you know there are six Marys in the Bible? So let's talk about one sixth of them. Mary Magdalene, please. Just
1: so wind me up that people talk about her as a prostitute? Ugh. Anyway, we actually don't know a great deal about Mary Magdalene before she met Jesus. It does say that he cast seven demons yes. out of her. This is in the description of, of her with the other women actually supporting Jesus financially. So, but that could mean anything, yes. you know, that simply means that in some way or another she was bound um, and she needed freeing when she met Jesus. We do know, as I said, that she financially supported Jesus after she obviously came to follow him. We do know, crucially, that she not only uh, witnessed Jesus' death, but she was the first person to see him resurrected. Mm -hmm. Uh, We read about that in John. And therefore the first first missionary, if you like, the first person to share that news. The problem that she suffers, uh, or we suffer actually, because she'll not be bothered about it, um, is because of Western art and modern media, which have depicted her as a prostitute. And sometimes even this absolutely ridiculous notion that she married Jesus, which is, it's so absurd. I'm not even going to, you know, credit it with an answer. The problem came because in the sixth century, Pope Gregory the Great, authoritatively pronounced as a a Pope, that this sinful woman that we spoke about a few moments ago, the woman in Luke 7, who anointed Jesus and who let her hair down and, and so on, was the same person as Mary Magdalene. We have got absolutely nothing And no offence to Pope Gregory, who's now, you know, elsewhere. But we have absolutely nothing to support that. And the Eastern Orthodox Church never have linked Mary Magdalene with that particular story ever.
0: Oh, really? Okay. So it's,
1: it's only the Western Church. There is nothing to equate those two women at all. And in fact, the fact that she's not named the woman in Luke 7, although Luke, I'm sure, would have known who it was, uh, Luke, it appears, took a lot of his recollections from from Mary, Jesus' mother. There's just nothing at all to support that.
0: I'm glad you said that because in my extensive research, uh, because in Nick Page's book, he says the same thing. There's no historical or credible evidence that she is a prostitute or anything else that people have been suggesting ever since. And he says he can go back, in fact, to the third century with the Gospel of Philip. Because as we know, there are quite a few Gospels flying around that weren't considered to be worthy enough to go in the Bible, let alone any good. That's the first suggestion in the third century that Jesus frequently kissed her. He also talks about Luke and that he was a great historian. So he would have got his facts right. Yeah. And he would have suggested it was Mary Magdalene if it was her at all. Obviously wasn't. So what else can we learn about her?
1: No, it totally wasn't. Um, not much else, although there were some interesting discoveries um, in the 19th and 20th century, some Christian texts that were discovered in Egypt. I haven't been able to track down what they were called, actually, but there were various pieces of information which went back to the 2nd and 3rd century. So not to the time of Jesus, but not too long afterwards. Okay. And actually in those, Mary is mentioned as the apostle to the apostles. That makes sense because, of course, when she encounters Jesus after the resurrection in the garden, he says, go and tell my brothers she is sent. And therefore she is an apostle yes. to the apostles. And, and again, you know, we spoke about women not being witnesses in a court of law. So isn't it fabulous that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She is a faithful and was a faithful disciple. We know some things, but there's a lot that we don't know.
0: Yeah. So we could actually call her the Apostle Mary without being stoned or we could. dragged through certain hedges.
1: Yeah, no, we, actually, we we absolutely could.
0: Okay, here we go. Then the $64,000 question, because I've asked this a few times on previous podcasts. And I'd like to know more about two things. First of all, the Mias Road incident, please. That's mentioned in Luke. And it's also something similar in Mark's last chapter. So before we go further into why I want to discuss this, Is it the same thing, the one in Mark and the one in Luke, please?
1: Well, yes, a really good question, Uh, and I'm not sure it's one we can answer. (laughs) The last part of of Mark, uh, well, that part of Mark 16, isn't found in most of the older manuscripts. Now, whether that's because it's not as accurate, we don't know why that is, because obviously there are all sorts of uncertainties around some of the early copies of the Gospels. But if you compare the Emmaus Road incident in Luke, chapter 24 with luke 16 they're not exactly the same because in mark it says that they returned and reported it to the rest but they did
0: sorry you said in luke 16 Where we sorry saying? in
1: mark in mark 16 yeah thank you it says that they returned that the people who were, who were walking returned and reported it to the rest but they did not believe them now in luke's account that's not how it happens so They could be different ones, different stories, because there are clearly other stories of the resurrection that we don't know. It makes that clear in one of Paul's letters that there was more going on than we've we've got in the four Gospels. But it may be that part of the reason that Mark 16 isn't included in some of the earlier manuscripts is because perhaps it wasn't as accurate. So long, short story, we don't know if they were intended to be the same event or not. But if they were, there are some differences that we would have to account for or a difference we'd need to account for. But coming back to Luke 24, which is, I think, many, many people's favourite story. These two people walking on the, the road to Emmaus and Jesus draws alongside them. and They're having a fierce debate, actually, is the strength of the original work. And he asks them, and this is just brilliant. I, mean, I just love the way Jesus does it. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like as if there's anything else they would be talking about. And of course he knows what they're talking about. Yeah. But he does that, of course, to allow them to tell their story. These are people who are bereaved. And one thing that all of us need to do in people who are bereaved is allow them to tell their story. So it's beautiful. Yes. And it's lovely as well in in the sense that Jesus is with them, but he's hidden from them initially. And so often I think God is with us, but that's hidden from us. But in terms of who they were, what it does say is that it was Cleopas and another. Now, Cleopas <clears throat> was a man's name. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, although some people have said he was one of the 70, because uh, Luke mm-hmm. 10 talks about 70 people being sent out as disciples, so the wider group. And we don't know, actually. Now, the other person isn't named, and it's often assumed that there were two men. I think, uh, and it's entirely my opinion, I can't prove it, that this person was Cleopas's wife and the reason that i think this may be the case is when they get close to what is presumably their home they invite jesus in and when he breaks bread they realize that it's jesus if they're inviting jesus back to what is as i say presumably their home they are most likely to be husband and wife yes returning to the family home it also does say that they're almost arguing with each other and i can just imagine that you know the, um, they're coming from different perspectives on whether you know Maybe, and this is really speculative, maybe Clearpass is saying, you oh, I don't think Jesus could be alive. There's no proof. And if it is his wife, she's saying, but the women say.
0: Yeah, Mary says.
1: Yeah, we don't know. But because they're going back to a home, I think that they were husband and wife. I don't think that would have been deliberately airbrushing her out. That would have been the norm at the time, to, to name the man and not the wife. Right. I don't think there was particularly anything sinister in that. And actually, you could argue that were they two men, they would have been more likely to name the other one.
0: Yes. And had they been two brothers, yeah. for instance, yeah. they would be named. Cleopas and his brother, whatever.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Okay, so not deliberately airbrushed out. It's just because the time of when it was written.
1: Yes, because, you know, the New Testament bears marks of its context. Yeah. You when it was written, and I don't think we should be criticising the writers for that. I do firmly believe that the Holy Spirit has inspired all that is written, but has done it through human beings who brought with them their own culture and their own expectations.
0: Yeah, yeah. You said there uh, about the 70, you know, when Jesus sent out the 70, he sent out the 12, then he sent out the 70. What about that the seventy could have been made up with men and women? I their wives, for instance, they could be part of the seventy. Because if you're going out into a foreign land, a woman can do so much more in a different area than a man could do.
1: Yeah, there's there's nothing to suggest that they were all men. And when it speaks about Jesus' ascension, it talks about 120, or uh, well, it might be in the beginning of Acts. Actually, I don't have I don't have it to hand, but. Clearly, there was a much wider grouping of disciples who most definitely did include women. There's a wonderful story, isn't there, of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. So Jesus has gone to uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, uh, which seems to have been a bit of a respite place for him. You know, somewhere he went and he just needed to rest, uh, brother and these two women. And they're preparing a meal for him and probably for the disciples, too. And Martha, it says, is getting distracted and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Now that's highly significant because you sat at the feet of a rabbi. So what Mary is doing is, is she is putting herself in the place of a disciple, and Jesus is allowing her to do that. Mm. And when Martha comes and says, Tell her to help, <laughs> Jesus says, you know, she has chosen the better part. In other words, she it's okay for her to be a disciple. I, I don't think he was criticizing Martha. No doubt there was something around, you know, Martha, I'm not so bothered about getting the food perfect. What I want you to do is to listen to what I have to say. And Mary does that. So she, you know, again, a boundary breaking story.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The term airbrush I got from a a previous documentary that I watched on Channel 4 many years ago and had a profound uh, effect on me and my thinking In, in a positive way, by the way, not in a bad way. And they were suggesting that the women had been airbrushed out of the Bible. Now, not just in four Gospels, but obviously subsequently.
1: Well, I'm I'm not sure they've been airbrushed out of the Bible. I I, I think our interpretation is what's at fault. So it would be a whole other topic, and not one that we can get into now, but about the place of women in the writings of Paul, for example. Yes. I think he's been, I think I said in the previous podcast, massively misunderstood. So the problem is not so much what is and isn't in the text, it's the way in which that has been read over the years and is still sometimes read. And part of our problem, of course, is is we have an English Bible, those of us that are English, and it was written originally, not in English. So sometimes some of the nuances and the terminology we don't understand. Yeah. Because you know we, we can't unless we happen to be Greek and Hebrew speakers. But I'm not sure about the term airbrushed. I, I actually understand I watched the documentary, it's very good. And I understand where they're coming from, but I think it's not a deliberate kind of attempt to not include women. I think it's partly, as I say, reflecting the culture, even much more so reflecting the way that we've read it.
0: The documentary that I'm talking about is available on YouTube, by the way. It came out 10 years ago on Channel 4, and I was so glad to have found it again and watch it a couple of years ago on YouTube, and it's called Jesus' First Women Disciples. If you just put that into Google or into YouTube, you'll find it. It's a 45-minute documentary, as I say, made professionally, for Channel 4 TV, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, we're doing this by internet, whereas the two ladies concerned, money now, Object, let's go and record a bit in Italy. Oh, let's go and do a little bit in Israel. Let's go and do a bit here. It's like difference.
1: Your your lawyers and my lawyers didn't quite have the budget to do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, though, uh, in light of a sermon from our, uh, our vicar on Sunday, and I think this will encapsulate what we've been talking today, he was trying to say that actually it's character that is important and that if Jesus and Paul, I know we're not going to talk about Paul, but maybe we can do a subsequent podcast on that. If they'd been going on more about, well, actually, it's not fair on a woman, it's not fair on this and all of that, people would have missed out on the truth of who Jesus is, and it's about character, who you really are, and who Jesus wants you to be. Yeah. What would you say to that?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's not so much to do with gender Although there is a, a beautiful quote from Dorothy Sayers that I'd like us to sneak in, Martin, at some point before we close.
0: Well, she was a very good writer. I haven't read any of her books, incidentally, but the films I've seen, yeah. <laughs> like Little Women and everything else, that, yeah, they're very good. So,
1: um, Yeah, who, who we are um, as people, first of all, I'd want to say who we are as people is adored by God and loved by God. And we are precious, um, regardless of whether we're male or female. And what God looks at is our hearts. God knows us as the men and the women that we are and the men and women that we would want to be as he continues changing us. And yeah, it's very much about heart.
0: So read away.
1: I will. So this is from Dorothy Sayers and it's a book called Are Women Human? Astute and Witty Essays on the Role of Women in Society. But this is particularly about Jesus and it says it all really. So she writes, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as either the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. Who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. Thank you. It's just fantastic. Yeah, it is. And, you know, where she starts, they were first at the cradle and last at the cross. Women were absolutely integral and central to the life and ministry of Jesus. And he honoured them and, and raised them to the status of the people that they could be. And he does that for us as well.
0: With your hat on, which says lecturer, Spurgeons College, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If this had been a lecture today in front of people, when it comes to any questions at the the end, you must have had loads of questions, some of them being deliberately antagonistic, some of them being, I want to know more. What kind of questions would you get back from today's lecture, do you think, from people in front of you?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I kind of hope people haven't heard it as a lecture. I do hope they've heard it as a conversation, although I'm aware I've talked a lot. I think probably how does that equate now? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, several centuries have gone since then. I think there would be questions about, well, then how has it all gone so wrong? Because the history of women in the church has not always been one of being honoured and given their place and allowed to be all that we can be. When I was looking to go into ministry, there were still a number of churches who would not even contemplate me as a woman minister, Mm -hmm. and that would still be the case in some places. So I I think there would be a lot of questions about the difference between how Jesus viewed women and what can sometimes happen now, for sure. But hopefully, hopefully things like this conversation can at least a little bit set that right.
0: Yeah, you raised two questions there. So in the remaining five minutes then, if it was a lecture hall and people have generally asked these questions to learn not to be antagonistic, what would you say?
1: Oh, what would I say? Well, in relation to the second one, I suppose what I would probably say is we can't undo the history that there has been. But let's look at what we can do now. Because, you know, it's easy to blame history, isn't it? But actually, we are where we are and so I would look at how can we now make the, the most of the the many incredibly gifted women that there are in church and Christian settings and allow them to really have their voice. There are some really extraordinary women doing extraordinary things. So I think I would say let, let's look from here on in rather than rehearse the past, definitely. And I can't remember now what the first question was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was, what about now? Because obviously it's been like 2,000 years on. What about now? What can we learn from it?
1: I think what we can learn is that we have not read properly, actually, a lot of the gospel stories. And I would, in brackets, say the same about Paul's letters. And that we need to revisit that and we need to look with fresh eyes. Because the problem is we all kind of inherit the things that we're told. You know, when I was first a Christian, because the, the issues change, I was told you couldn't, couldn't watch TV on a, on a Sunday. Well, I don't think yeah, yeah. pretty much anybody would say that now. So I, I think we need to sort of set away the baggage that we have from the things that we've been told and we haven't questioned. And we need to come with fresh eyes and actually look at the Gospels. And if there's anybody listening who's never read the Gospels, then I would say just you know, read them. Read them in something like The Message or the English Standard Version where the kind of language is very accessible just read them and see for yourself you know, how extraordinary a person Jesus was and the wonderful way that he dealt with people of both genders.
0: Yeah. I'm sounding a bit like Paul myself now because I said the you know, remaining five minutes and you know, two questions there, I've got a third one. <laughs> but this hopefully will encapsulate everything we talked about. But from your personal point of view, being a lady, you most probably have been at the brunt of antagonistic comments in the past. What have you learnt from all those comments and how do you apply it to yourself these days?
1: Well, yes, I have, inevitably, and and, um, as many of the women, I'm sure, who have been listening will. I think you have to stand secure in who you are. And I remember in the early days reading a a verse completely out of context, actually, about God looking at kind of who we are, not not in terms of gender and so on. And that wasn't actually what the verse was about, but it hit me. uh, And I felt as though God was saying, do you know what, it's not about your gender. And it's not about things that people do or don't say about that. It's about what I have called you to do. And you need to be faithful to that. And, you know, of course, the things that I said hurt some of the time. Sometimes they're just funny. I was introduced on a hospital visit once. Oh, this this is one of my ministers. I know she doesn't look like one, whatever that means. Didn't have a beard, I suppose. I don't know. And, you know, I have many witty stories that if we had longer, I could tell you about that. And the things that are hurtful, I have just learned to think they don't understand. And that is not how God sees me. And that's actually, at the end of the day, what counts.
0: And the fact that they don't understand, that's a two-way thing because they don't understand now, but they might be wait- waiting to learn. So they do understand later on.
1: Yes. It's about both genders not holding on to prejudices. You know, it's... Yes, it's important because it is on the whole men, not always actually, but on the whole it it is men who are unsure about women in ministry and so on. Sometimes it's women Mm -hmm. and those prejudices need to be laid down. But also it's important those of us who are women in, in leadership not holding any ourselves. And certainly it's so important, I think, not to be strident, you know, to be coming at it from a peaceful and loving and gracious perspective and seeking to change hearts and minds if we genuinely believe that they are mistaken but doing so in in a way that comes from that
0: place of grace it's interesting you say there then about prejudice yourself in fact we shouldn't even have to say ladies as a minister let's get rid of the the genders here as a minister what prejudice could you have as a lady then
1: well in the early days certainly i think it was begun to get to a point when i thought this is what all men feel you know all men are opposed to me as a as a woman seeking to come into christian leadership and of course that's not true and i think it for all of us we can hear something and it becomes sort of global you know we hear this from from one person or one segment of the church or whatever it may be and and we think that that's everybody's opinion and that's not true and then that becomes inbuilt as a kind of prejudice within us so We always have to see people as individuals and to hear where they're coming from. So even people who may feel differently from the way we do about, for example, women in leadership, we need to hear, well, where's that coming from? Is it coming from their reading of the scriptures? In which case we have to be respectful of that reading, even though we may disagree and may want to say there's another way to read that. Is it coming from simply the way they've been brought up and what they've heard? Is it coming from what they've been taught in a particular denomination or church they belong to? You know, where is that coming from? And and to see that person as the individual that they are, rather than to uh, with some sort of blanket uh, assessment. I hope that makes sense.
0: Well, hopefully, because I'm going to ask another question on the back end of that as well, because I know of at least two friends of mine at the moment who are going through what is going to be a, unless something amazing happens. Yeah, really awful church splits. And a lot of it's to do with women in the pulpit. And it's hurting so many people. Mm. Short of tying yourself up to a railing and things like that, saying uh, enough's enough, what would you say to the congregation if they came to you? But what would you say to these people at the moment who are seeing their loved ones, their church, being split upon certain doctrinal issues, such as women in the pulpit?
1: I I think it's incredibly painful because churches, there are families you know, and, and when there is a split, then, then that's what it is. And I think it's very sad. Sometimes it, it is because people haven't actually experienced seeing women in that role. Mm-hmm. And and the only sort of counter to that is to see it. You know, when, I remember when in one of the churches that I served in, several people saying to me, oh, I, I just, I didn't think that it could work. You know, I didn't see how it could be okay. And similar comments and even comments about well women 's voices don 't work in preaching, which is very bizarre, but now I can see I, I, I get it now, and I think it 's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy isn 't it if people don 't see women and realize the giftings that they bring um, and the different perspectives sometimes helpfully that they bring, then how are they going to know that that is a good thing so sometimes and sometimes there is obviously about educating some of the kind of proof texts and what what they really mean, yeah. But I, I, there isn't a simple answer, Martin. I really wish there was. And my heart goes out to those who get caught up in it, in the, in the pain and um, suffering that it brings. And I, I just think God must weep over it because that's not what he intends.
0: Well, I know having read a, a great biography on John Wesley, when it comes to understanding women, he's probably the last in line to explain how a woman thinks. He was completely and utterly, well, he just, he just didn't have a clue. But one thing he did know was that he had no problems with having women as ministers. You are representing Spurgeon College. You still work for them. You've been a president for them, and everything else like that. So they obviously haven't got a problem with you being a Baptist minister either. For those of us listening today and saying, well, what is the issue? What is the key issue in the whole Bible that gets people to say, no, we can't have women as a minister?
1: Well, it is some of the texts, and that really would be another podcast where Paul um, says things which have been read as denying women the opportunity to teach in the church that is how they have been read I don't believe that's what he was saying but because of that very often people who don't think women should be in ministry that you know some of them are faithfully reading the scriptures they are just I believe not reading them correctly but that that's where generally it comes from and I think sometimes as well it's actually it's unfamiliarity because people um at least in some denominations haven't seen women and so they kind of can't imagine it it's a failure of the imagination as much as anything so I think it's a mixture of that and one or two certain texts in, in the letters of Paul. I don't believe that's what he was saying then.
0: So to summarise it all then, as far as I'm concerned, from what our topic is today, Jesus and women in the Gospels, there is no mention at all in those four Gospels that women can't be ministers or anything else like that that could be uh, used as evidence for, well, yes, that's why we don't have them.
1: Uh, all we see in the Gospels is Jesus honouring women, him including women, him teaching women and being a, among his cohort, there is nothing that would say that Jesus wouldn't affirm women in ministry. And I, I believe with all my heart that he does.
0: Jeannie, wow. Thank you so much for this time today. I've loved every minute of reading up on what we could talk about. Loved every minute we've had of uh, emails going to and from each other as well. Hopefully people will enjoy this podcast, having listened to it. If you want to contact us, for good or bad, Please write it in love. That's the most important thing. If you want to tell me off, if you want to tell Jeannie off, then please, you're more than welcome to, but do it in love, please, will you? Then we can respond in love as well. And the best way to contact us is OGC, which stands obviously for off Grid Christianity, at accessradio.biz. Um, biz is spelled B-I-Z. Uh, and if you can't remember that, if you just type in off Grid Christianity, you'll find it on the website, and there's other places on the website whereby you can contact us through that way. Jeannie, thank you so much today. And I've got a feeling in the next few months, our lawyers will be talking to your lawyers again (laughs) about part three. And we'll talk about that golden little nugget. What did Paul actually say about women in the Bible?
1: I do hope people aren't taking us seriously and think that our lawyers are really exchanging, (laughs) if only, hey.
0: Yeah, well, obviously, you've got to explain to them why you flew over to see me in your private jet. Jeannie, thank you so much today. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much.
1: Always a pleasure. Thanks, Martin. Thank
0: you. Cheers, God bless. Bye-bye.